Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 36, the book of Acts, chapter 15, the third continuation. Well, the last time that we looked closely at chapter uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 20, where the supreme leader of the way, Yeshua's brother James, says this is referring to the new Gentile believers living in Antioch, we read this in Acts chapter 15, 20. Instead, we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from fornication, from what is strangled, and from blood. Now, this statement was part of a momentous decision by the Jerusalem Council to not require circumcision of Gentiles who want to worship Yeshua as Savior and God. Now, essentially, this meant they could remain as Gentiles and not convert to Jews. We also learned that far from some newly concocted set of rules for Christians. This list of four prohibitions that we find in Acts 15 was taken directly from the Law of Moses, which we traced to Leviticus chapters 17 and 18. But even more, the concept of Gentile proselytes at first not being expected to follow the entire Jewish halakha, nor even that part of halakha that was the law of Moses, was already well understood within Judaism. That was evidenced by a recorded case law in the Talmud. Rather, the concept was that the new Gentile believers would be given a few basic commandments to obey, the most fundamental ones that were directly related to ritual purity, And over time, as they grew and matured in the faith, they would be taught the Torah in synagogues, and more would be required of them. But each at his or her own pace. So the point of requiring immediate implementation of those four rules in Acts 15 was this. Without keeping ritually clean, then these Gentile believers couldn't enter into a synagogue and they couldn't have table fellowship with Jews. I mean, isn't this a most wise approach? Even if we don't see such a method necessarily given to us in the scriptures as a direct commandment. I mean, modern day Christians and Messianics need to take note of this as we evangelize and mentor new believers. People who have only recently come to know the Lord are like toddlers who've only recently learned to walk, to talk. It would be foolish, it would be downright unkind to next expect them to quickly graduate to marathons and to give eloquent speeches or to give elaborate explanations of their faith. Or better, to expect their behavior to change overnight to something that meets our standard of godliness. Rather, they must be embraced 
They must be given some basic instructions to follow and then fed a steady diet of God's Word. And as they grow in God's Word, they can be gradually encouraged to follow more of God's commandments fully and with more consistency. Now this doesn't mean that their sin is excused or it's papered over, but it may mean that sins do mostly to an ignorance of God's ways are explained in a merciful and a loving manner rather than the new believer being condemned for his or her trespasses. It's really no different than how we raise children. We don't expect kindergartners to behave like high school students. Maturing is a long process. It takes nurturing and time and patience. Well, let's reread part of Acts 15. We're going to start at verse 22. Acts 15, starting at verse 22. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's page 1382. Acts 15, starting at verse 22. Then the emissaries and the elders, together with the whole Messianic community, decided to select men from among themselves to send to Antioch with Shaul and Barnabah. They sent Yehuda, called Bar-Sabah, and Selah, both leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. From the emissaries and the elders, your brothers... Two, the brothers from among the Gentiles throughout Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings! We have heard that some people went out from among us without our authorization, and that they have upset you with their talk, unsettling your minds. So we've decided unanimously to select men and to send them with you with our dear friends Barnabas and and Paul who have dedicated their lives to upholding the name of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. So, we have sent Judah and Selah, and they will confirm in person what we're writing. For it seemed good to the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and to us not to lay any heavier burden on you than the following requirements. To abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from fornication. And if you keep yourselves from these, you'll be doing the right thing. Shalom. Well, the messengers were sent off, and they went to Antioch, where they gathered the group together and delivered the letter. And after reading it, the people were delighted by its encouragement. Judah and Silah, who were also prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. And after they had spent some time there, they were sent off with a greeting of Shalom from the brothers to those who had sent them. But Shaul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, where they and many others taught and proclaimed the good news of the message about the Lord. Now after some time, Shaul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we proclaim the message about the Lord and see how they're doing. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them Yochanan, the one called Mark. But uh, Paul thought it would be unwise to take this man with them since he'd gone off and left them in Pamphylia to do the work by themselves. There was such a sharp disagreement over this that they separated from each other with Barnabas taking Mark and sailing off to Cyprus. However, 
Paul chose Selah and left after the brothers had committed him to the love and kindness of the Lord. He went through Assyria and Cilicia, strengthening the congregations. Once the leadership council had made their decision, they decided on a course of action, then the next step was to communicate it to the Antioch congregation. This was customarily accomplished by sending an official written letter. So the leadership announced their decision to the local Messianic Jews in Jerusalem, and together they recommended some men go to Antioch and and deliver this, this letter. Well, they sent a fellow named Judah, Judah, also called Bar Sabah, and also another man named Selah. Now, Judah was this person's Hebrew name, Bar Sabah was his Aramaic name. Now, these men were not part of the Way's leadership council, but they probably were more or less on the maybe the first rung of leadership on the leadership ladder. Now, why did they elect to send men from Jerusalem to go with Paul and Barnabas? Because they wanted to authenticate that this edict came directly from the leadership council. Now remember, what precipitated this council meeting in the first place was that a self-appointed group of believers who firmly believed that Gentiles had to be circumcised and thus converted to Jews went out from Jerusalem to Antioch implying that what they demanded was a doctrine subscribed to by the Jerusalem Leadership Council of the Way. And since this letter was a reversal of that doctrine, then the Jerusalem Council must have felt that the strongest possible proof of authenticity was needed. Now let's talk for a minute about the first of these four prohibitions for the Gentile believers. The words are to abstain from things polluted by idols. Now in the letter it actually changes a little bit and says sacrificed to idols. Now this is usually taken to pertain to food. But food is not the only thing that was offered to idols. Everything from the family pets to clothing to wine to jewelry, charms were offered to the pagan idols. So this rule is rather all-encompassing. That said, food was perhaps at the top of the list as concerned ritual purity for Jews. So at the least this instruction included food and likely it was zeroing in on food items that had been offered to idols. Nonetheless, underlying this rule is the issue of idolatry and idol worship was the mainstay of all pagan religions. Now as we discussed it last time, another rule of the four, this rule against fornication, is used in the sense to mean any kind of immoral sexual activity, immoral according to the Torah, of course. Now I want you to have that sink in for a moment. When we think about James establishing these four rules, but according to kind of mainline Christian doctrine, he was abrogating 
the remainder of the commandments of the Torah for Gentile believers. Now, there are many laws in the Torah that when used together define immoral or illicit sexual activity. There's not just one. God is careful in His Word to define these terms. But you have to search the Torah from Genesis through Deuteronomy to pull it all out and list all of God's rules about human sexual activity. So by whose standard of sexual morality did James intend the Gentile Christians were to go by when determining what's lawful and what is not lawful for them? I mean, how does a person define what fornication is and is not? According to what set of law codes? Roman law codes? Well, of course not. Believers are to go by God's law code. And that is found in the Torah. So while this rule about fornication might seem to us like only one simple commandment, in fact, it incorporates several laws of Moses. Now this rule, another rule, this rule against strangling a food animal, it's quite similar. It may sound like just one simple rule, but there are several laws of Moses that deal with how to kill food animals for the sake of ritual purity. There are also aspects of killing food animals that deals with being humane to God's creatures. So once again, while we see one general rule about killing a food animal, in fact, the standard for this one rule is contained by aggregating a number of the laws of Moses. Which is, of course, what these new believers would have been expected to abide by. So, what we see so far is, the first rule and the third rule are mostly aimed at food. It breaks God's food laws to eat an animal that was offered to an idol, that is, to a false god. It also breaks God's food laws to strangle a food animal to death before eating it. And then finally we have the fourth rule, and it too, at least partially, applies to food. The fourth rule says to abstain from blood. So three of the four rules that James set out applies to what makes food kosher. (laughs) And what makes food kosher is all about ritual purity. At least that's beyond what God says is permitted versus prohibited to eat in the first place. Whether it's clean or it's unclean. I'm going to say it again. Three of these four rules set down in Acts 15 for Gentile Christians to obey are directly related to food and diet. And all these rules are derived directly from the Torah. Interesting. I thought the Christian doctrine was that all kosher food laws were done away with at least for Gentile Christians. But here are three standard kosher food laws that Gentile Christians are specifically told they must obey, says the Jerusalem Council. 
that's not all that the issue of blood deals with. See, blood is sort of a Jewish shorthand that deals with a number of issues. Whether animal or human, blood is sacred. The spilling of human blood has to be dealt with in a certain way or it is against God's Torah. Just as the spilling and use of animal blood has to be dealt with in a certain way or it's against God's Torah. See, now different commentators will argue that the prohibition against blood in Acts 15 is only speaking about murder. Or it's only speaking about blood as relates to food. Other commentators say it's covering both. Now, no doubt, this rule in Acts 15 is ambiguous in its scope. Everything it covers. What we can know for sure, however, is that the sentence is constructed in a way that the prohibition against blood is directly connected to animals that are strangled. Such the blood from the animals not drained from it. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't also apply to homicide and other matters of human blood. So my opinion is that it is certain that it refers to how food animals must be slaughtered and then the treatment thereafter of the animal blood, such as not using the blood itself as food. But it is likely that it also intends to extend to the laws concerning the spilling of human blood. And by the way, this this rule against blood is encompassed by numerous Torah laws that call out, say, for instance, what murder versus manslaughter is. What unjustified versus justified killing of a human is. It even goes down to the matter of menstrual blood, of blood that is spilled during childbirth. All of these things. So this issue of blood is very broad and it's defined by several separate laws and commandments in the Torah. Some involving food, some involving humane treatment of animals, others that still that deal with homicide, several topics. The bottom line to this is that these four laws that James pronounced are in fact and follow me with this, simply the naming of categories. Categories that include dozens of laws in the Torah. Not only are these categories derived from the Torah, but you know, think about it. Without the Torah definitions and instructions, we have no standard for even knowing what these four laws mean let alone how to apply them. So it's quite ingenuous for commentators to claim that by James establishing these four rules, he has effectively replaced and abolished the law of Moses for Gentiles. Well, the heading of the letter to the Gentile believers begins in verse 23. It opens by saying that the leadership of the way, sometimes, by the way, they're called emissaries, which is also a designation for the original 12 disciples, and some other leaders called the elders, are the authorized writers of this letter. 
and that they consider themselves as brothers to these Gentile believers. See, this is meant in a warm and friendly way to indicate a close relationship. But, but not that suddenly these Gentile believers share a gene pool with the Jewish leadership as a result of all involved with having received the Holy Spirit. And they begin their letter by distancing themselves from their fellow Jewish believers who went to Antioch without proper authority and telling these Gentiles that they indeed had to be circumcised. The important point is that it is specifically stated here that the circumcision faction went out from this group of believers and members of the way. And we learn that some of them were Pharisees. But that doesn't alter the fact. Paul was also a Pharisee. So in Galatians 2... When Paul says in verse 4 that these men of the circumcision faction, ah, they're just pretenders. We need to understand, Paul is being typically Paul. He uses a harsh tone with his choice of terms. But we also need to realize that while he seems to question these men's faith because of their belief in circumcision for Gentiles, James, the leader of the way, obviously does not question their faith. He just doesn't agree with their doctrine about circumcising Gentiles. And the letter also confirms that the men who are delivering this letter are fully authorized to do so. Well then, verse 28 essentially tells the Gentiles what we already know. That the four things that are immediately required of them are abstaining from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from strangling animals, and from sexual immorality. Now, when we carefully read this passage, look at it yourselves. We find that not one word is said to directly refute the claim of the circumcision faction that Gentiles must be circumcised in order to worship Yeshua. The subject of circumcision is really not even mentioned. Rather, the issue of circumcision is just implied by saying that if the Gentiles will obey these four prohibitions, they'll be doing the right thing. See, this is where things have, in my opinion, taken a strange and unwarranted turn in Christianity. See, I, I can recall telling, uh, telling my teenage sons that going to school and getting good grades is what they should focus on. Because so much of what was going to be their future was based on that. Going to school, getting good grades. So to put that thought, same thought, in the vernacular of this letter to the Gentiles, if my sons would go to school, study hard, and get good grades, they'd be doing the right thing. Does that sound to you like I meant that all the other house rules and requirements for their lives are hereby abolished? And the only requirement I have for them is go to school and get good grades. That's it. Is that implied with what I said? Of course not. 
or that all boundaries and limits for them are hereby erased as long as they go to school and get good grades. I mean, I can promise you, they didn't take it to mean that. They still had to be obedient. They still had to be home at the time given to them. They're boys, they still had to bathe. They still had to clean their rooms and so on. The point is this. Does this instruction then actually imply that Gentile believers should abide only by these four things and everything else can be permanently ignored? It doesn't say that. It doesn't imply it. Does it say or imply that nothing else for Gentiles matters? Everything else has been nullified. It doesn't imply that. It just says that if the Gentile believers will do these four things, what? What does it say? They'll be doing the right thing. That's what it says. In the sense that Gentiles will be on the right track. That these four rules are somehow the alpha and the omega of everything that a Gentile believer, a Christian, should or should not do from now on is in no way implied here. But that meaning has been erroneously read into this passage by Christianity for centuries in order that Christians can separate themselves from Jews and from the Old Testament. Now I pray that you're seeing that on every level it's illogical to take this letter in Acts 15 to the extreme that Christians now have only four rules to follow and thus the law of Moses has been abolished by James, brother of Christ. For one thing, just follow this through. Without knowing the law of Moses, we don't even know what these four rules mean. We don't have any idea how to carry them out. And if the law of Moses is abolished, well, these four rules are necessarily abolished right along with it, as well as the Ten Commandments, by the way. And there's something I want to alert you to. Because it's most pertinent to us in our day and time. Due to the rapidly increasing influence of Islam in the West, it's now common common to find meats in our markets and our restaurant that are clearly labeled as halal. If you haven't noticed it yet, just look on some of your menus. A good Muslim will not eat meat unless they are certain it is halal. Now, halal is essentially the Islamic version of kosher. Okay. The issue is this. Part of what makes meat halal for Muslims is that during the meat processing, it has to be dedicated to Allah. It has to be. Specifically, during the meat processing process, a Muslim religious authority will recite a prayer over the meat. 
And this prayer of dedication to Allah is called the Tazmiyah or the Shahada. Now I hope this unnerves you a little bit. Because since Allah is a false god, then doesn't this seem to be at the heart of the matter of the Acts 15 rule against eating things dedicated to idols? Since idols are nothing but depictions of false gods? Yeah, that shakes you a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, until recently, we've not had to even be concerned about eating meat dedicated to idols. I mean, that's something that Christianity has long ago seen as an irrelevant relic. But whoa, now up pops Islam, along with a movement of tolerance to appease their religion, suddenly this rule becomes quite pertinent to us again, doesn't it? I want to state this clearly. If you eat halal-approved meat, you are eating meat that has been dedicated to an idol, to a false god, Allah. I strongly advise against it. Now the story of Acts 15 winds down quickly. And we're told that the two envoys, Judah and Selah, accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Antioch. A congregation meeting was convened. The letter was read to them. Now the people, we are told, were delighted with its encouragement. Now no doubt the term, the people, meant both Jews and Gentiles because this ruling from Jerusalem, man, it solved issues for both groups. It meant that the adult Gentile males did not have to go through the grueling experience of circumcision. And it meant they did not have to disavow their Gentile identity and become Jews, which could have far-reaching effect on their families, their friends, their businesses. Now for the Jews, it was clear that their religious authorities the Jerusalem Council, decided that if Gentiles would obey four rules, then the issue of ritual purity was overcome. And so now the Jews no longer risked defilement by associating with these Gentile believers. Now we're told that Judah and Salah were prophets. So they said much to encourage and strengthen the brethren. Now the term prophet as used here, doesn't somehow mean um, that someone could predict the future. It does, doesn't mean a man that God called to deliver a new oracle. By now, the term prophet had evolved, such that it mostly meant a person who taught God's written word. Prophets were usually itinerant preachers, if you would and considered as among the most authoritative, knowledgeable, and wise when it came to discerning the Holy Scriptures. So, they were welcomed and they were honored. Well, in time, Judah and Selah left to go home to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch. Now, these two disciples have created quite a bond with this synagogue up in Antioch. And we can see their allegiance to the people there on display. But after a little more time passed, 
Paul suggested to Barnabas it would be good if they went and visited the other congregations of believers that they had set up in a number of towns. Now Barnabas wanted to include his relative John Mark on this mission trip. It's pretty clear that the leadership in Jerusalem was not controlling Paul and Barnabas's ministry. Rather, Paul and Barnabas decided in concert with the Antioch congregation what they were going to do. Now, it would be too strong to characterize this as a split. But at the same time, it's clear that in Jerusalem, the believer's main concern is the Jews. While Paul's main concern is the Gentiles. How one went about preaching the gospel, making new believers, discipling and mentoring them would necessarily be different depending on if you were witnessing to Gentiles or to Jews. And it would also be different depending on if the Jews lived in the Holy Land or if they lived in some foreign land. So there were disagreements in doctrine and we need to take that into account whenever we read Paul's epistles. Paul is always coming from a certain perspective due to his mission and agenda. And it isn't always the same perspective as Peter's or James. And when we hold their writings up to comparisons on common issues, we're going to see subtle but important differences. Now I want to pause for just a moment to make a point about evangelizing. You know, it's it's one thing to bring the good news to our Gentile friends and neighbors in America. But it's another to bring that same good news to Jews in Israel. And yes, depending on the circumstances, there can also be a third variable when bringing the good news to Jews in America. To take different approaches, using different people, to evangelize these different groups is not only wise, it's biblical. And we see it right here in Acts. You know, many years ago, after several trips to Israel, I began to understand why the success rate of Christians coming to Israel to spread the gospel was so poor. It was because most Jews in Israel didn't hear much of anything. They didn't want to hear anything from a Christian. And it's also very hard for comfortable and structured Americans to relate to the never-ending turmoil and chaos of Jewish Israel. The Israelis also see Christian naivety in believing that we can take our American Gentile methods and assume we can just transplant them in Israel. There are other reasons as well for failure. It's certainly not all the missionaries' fault. But rather, it also results from the closed ears of those to whom the message is being brought. But the point is that there is no one-size-fits-all method for spreading the gospel. And the extent to which certain doctrines are exercised and how they're followed are also it also necessary necessarily varies depending on your audience, depending on their culture, depending on the present circumstances. 
And he said, I realized that the only way that would bring true success in taking the good news to the Jews of Israel was if a believing Israeli Jew was the one doing the evangelizing. It also has to be done in the language of Israel. Hebrew. Adding those two elements breaks down many barriers for which Gentile Christians have no means to attack. So the list of those who can actually do this task effectively is quite narrow. For example, I personally know a few American missionaries who've been lived in Israel for years and years and they have learned little to no Hebrew. Very sad. They live in neighborhoods where other Americans live so that they feel more comfortable. English is spoken. There are stores that accommodate Western tastes. What do you think that says that says to the people of Israel? Does that say I'm one of you? I'm in solidarity solidarity with you? Or does it say that I'm not only not one of you, but I don't even find it worth my while to learn to speak your language or live under the same conditions that you live? But thanks be to God. Seed of Abraham Ministries has two ministries in Israel, completely staffed by believing Jews, most of whom were either born in Israel or immigrated to Israel, and all who speak Hebrew. They are having good success in establishing relationships and in demonstrating the love and care that comes with knowing Yeshua as Savior. They are also rehabilitating a very tarnished reputation that Christians have created over centuries in dealings, their dealings with Jews. But their approach, their approach wouldn't be very recognizable here in America. Probably wouldn't be very effective for taking the gospel to American Gentiles. But even more, it is quite culturally specific. So our staff does things that many churches just wouldn't approve of. I'm going to tell you honestly that because of these cultural differences there's always a bit of underlying tension present because dealing with Israeli Jews is so different than dealing with American Gentiles. Now while it's immensely gratifying the seed of Abraham is so diverse yet cohesive in our goals it's no easy trick to keep these various parts operating within different cultures with the proper level of cooperation that's needed and teaching the proper doctrine. It is necessary to give those two missions in Israel as much freedom as possible to operate within their unique culture, allowing them to choose how best to achieve their goal of bringing Yeshua back to Israel and to not burden them with ways and with thoughts that seem so normal and ordinary here, but they're foreign and at times counterproductive over there. Now I tell you this to help you 
understand the philosophy and goals of Seed of Abraham Ministries, but also to offer you a good modern day metaphor for what we see happening at this juncture of Acts chapter 15. There are indeed underlying tensions between Paul and Antioch and those believing Jews who operate out of Jerusalem and have James and Peter as their leaders. And now we see there is an underlying tension between Paul and Barnabas over family issues. This doesn't mean that someone is right, so the other one must be wrong. It is just typical social dynamics of humanity at work. And being a believer in Yeshua, even being an apostle, doesn't immunize us from having these same challenges. Barnabas wants his nephew, John Mark, to come with him. Paul doesn't. Because he doesn't feel he can count on him. Since on their last missionary journey, John Mark abandoned them. At least that's how Paul spoke about it. That's how he saw it. Now frankly, I'm not even entirely certain that John Mark's a believer. Nothing explicitly says so. Rather, his mother's a believer... His uncle Barnabas is said to be a believer. But one isn't a believer merely through association. It's like a friend of mine said the other day, sleeping in the garage doesn't make you a car. (laughs) Now Paul is a stickler for loyalty. And he's pretty rigid in his adherence to doctrines that he thinks are right. I like that guy. No doubt this is largely the result of his Pharisee background. But I also think it's just partly due to his inherent personality. Paul is all business. John Mark isn't. So Paul and Barnabas now part company with Barnabas and John Mark taking a trip to Cyprus. Now it was customary for the disciples to travel in pairs. So with Barnabas out of the picture, Paul asks Silah to join him. They departed for Syria and Cilicia where Paul had established some believing congregations. Well back in verse 33, we're told that Selah and Judah returned home from Antioch. So apparently, Paul must have sent word to Jerusalem and asked Selah if he would join him. Now the wording of verse 40, it kind of suggests that Paul left Antioch alone and must have met up with Selah somewhere along the journey. Well anyway, Paul left armed with an important new doctrine to use as he sought to make new believers of these Gentiles, especially. It was that they didn't need to convert to being a Jew to accept the gospel message. Paul, no doubt, also had to convince the Jews that if the Gentiles would abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from sexual immorality, from strangling food animals to death, and from blood, 
an official halakhic ruling made in Jerusalem said that these Gentiles would be ritually clean. This was critical for rapid growth in the number of Gentiles that would join the movement. Well, while the circumstances of Paul's and Barnabas' split is nothing righteous or edifying, the end result was that instead of a single team of Paul and Barnabas going out, now two teams began plowing the fertile ground of the Gentile world. Now, while this dispute that was serious enough to break up this very effective team of Paul and Barnabas is somewhat uncomfortable for us to read about, I mean, we kind of want to think better of our faith fathers that they could handle this better, it reminds us that they're not special or different. They're just human. Whatever set them apart from others was their God, not their merit. Yet God used their acrimonious parting for good. And each team went on to win many souls for the kingdom of heaven. We'll begin Acts chapter 16 next time.